0: Hey, Player 2. Hi, it's me, Kitty M, the Evil Geek. I'm going to take you through the Land of Pod this week, and there's a trash fire, and I'm going to explain how Batman isn't like Doctor Who at all, but Robin strangely is. (laughs) Also, I'm going to be comparing and contrasting Castlevania with Vampire Hunter D. God, I'm a nerd. This is why I'm alone. It's a good thing I don't like people. Come on, Player 2. Let's roll. Hey, player two, sit down. Yeah, I haven't mentioned the Orc Bartender in a while, but that's because we're training now. I'm in training because I'm gonna go to Canada soon and out drink Kiefer Sutherland. Then I'm gonna find Deadpool and I'm gonna date him. Because Deadpool's Canadian, so therefore I'll see him in Canada, of course. Speaking of horribly violent, not Canada. Deadpool is horribly violent. Have you heard about the latest controversy with Fallout 4? Dion, the guy who wrote The Wanderer, which you've heard in trailers for Fallout 4, is upset because there's a lot of violence in Fallout 4 and not good violence, but bad violence. I may be paraphrasing him right now. He's super hurt about his song being associated with that violence, and if only they paid him more money, so he could uh, use the money to personally tell people that's not what this song is about. You know the song, it's at best about an emotionally stunted playboy who has severe commitment issues, and at worst, if you just read the lyrics and take them on face value, it's like the theme song for Robert Doob in Eye for an Eye. Anyway, he's suing because his song is not about violence. It's just not about seeing women as people, and that is technically different. Speaking of emotionally stunted, there's more news about the Batman movie. Matt Reeves, who's going to be directing the movie, has said it's going to be a noir-driven detective story, and I am here for this. Here's why it's good. Batman is the world's greatest detective, which is unsurprising, seeing as DC stands for Detective Comics. The very things that make noir as a cinematic style are often things like moral ambiguity, corrupt worlds, overtones of pessimism, and literally lots of darkness those things lend themselves effortlessly to a Batman story. Could it turn into an artistic yawn in the face of comic book fans? Yeah. Or will it be the greatest thing ever? I'm banking on number two. But while we're waiting for that, October 21st will bring us DC superheroes versus Eagle Talon in anime form. It's going to be a little bit of a comedy thing, but I'm still totally here for this. It will be released in October in Japan, so no news of when it might get a Western release. But anime and DC superheroes, that's two of my favorite things that aren't food smushed together, which is ironic because I hate food that's been smushed. That's not where big news when it comes to movies ends, though. Netflix is bringing Sense8 back for a movie. Didn't I tell them to do that? Are they listening to me? they in this inn right now? Netflix, I'm still interested in a job, and if you want a whole lot of shows you can cancel, because remember you said you're not cancelling enough shows, I could make the shows that you would definitely cancel. How about this? A spin-off of Riverdale, but it's just about Cliff Blossom's wigs. We'll call it Real Wigs of Riverdale, and it'll follow the process of making Cliff Blossom's wigs. From how they procure the hair, which I assume comes from actual foxes, to making it the perfect fit for his head, which again, just an assumption, involves them doing fittings on a perfect mannequin of Cliff Blossom, or his clone, or someone whose skull they've shaved to be the perfect replica of Cliff Blossom's skull. Right? Netflix is also bringing back a second series of Castlevania, which is surprising. They only just released Castlevania. I'm guessing paying people to draw people is cheaper than filming people being people. You know what? I'm going to tell you more about Castlevania later. I know this great, probably abandoned, and not lived in by Vampire's Castle, so we'll go there. It's not all great news with Netflix, though. They're still insisting on going ahead with that American Death Note. Death Note is a manga and anime series which majority of anime fans know and at least respect even if it's not their particular cup of tea. It's also been made into live actions which I think have been very, very good. Even the J-drama, it was pretty good. Fight me. But, uh, this American version should be good news, but it's not. It looks awful definitely still gonna watch it, but it truly looks terribly bad. There's so much that will go wrong with this, I'm actually excited to tell you about it. But first, we need to get out of here. We've gotta stop by the trash fire first. Sorry. We're back at the trash fire. I just want one week where I can ignore the trash fire. One week where it's not just burning garbage, clogging up geek discussions. We could be fighting about Batman v Superman and I could be telling you why you're wrong about that movie if you didn't like that movie, or telling you how we can be best friends now because you like that movie. But not really, because I don't want to be your friend. We're not doing any of those things though, because Image let shake and run wild. I'm all for artistic freedoms, but the issue 4 cover of Divided States of Hysteria was not that. It was just running wild. It was streaking at a kid's party covered in hot sauce and burping expletives into the faces of old people, which to say it was grotesque and strange, but achieved nothing but ruining a perfectly good day. Divided states of hysteria I've talked about before. It's just a mess, a mess of insults that are meant to be waking us up to what's really going on. Image and Chaykin have now responded to the criticisms about issue 4's cover with what I assume was meant to be an apology from Image and a lecture from Chaykin. Both were pitiful in their general theme, however, which was that yes, it was confronting to see that hate crime on a cover, but see, it was meant to be confronting. It was meant to make us angry like we're not already angry. Of course, they don't want us to be angry at them. In Chaykin's statement, and if you're new to Chaiken, just a heads up, his condescension is rivaled only by his willful ignorance, and both are dwarfed by his misplaced and overinflated sense of importance. But he went as, so far as to say that if you can't work out drawing something isn't the same as the thing happening, he suggests, and I quote, you might want to invest some or all of that affronted energetic rage in the midterm elections in 2018. First, you don't get to wax lyrical about understanding the struggle Then, when members of the community you're trying to represent say you are literally the struggle right now. You don't get to ignore their feelings. You don't get to say you're shining a light on injustice and then gaslight the people that injustice is happening to. And secondly, if maintaining rage is so important, why are you dragging it out of people when they have very real fights to handle? Though, as the desired audience for this comic and therefore the intended recipient of this advice, and I only speak for me here, don't ever tell me to save my rage. It is not a finite resource. It's eternal. I've been angry for a long time, that's not changing. Chaykin also decided to take aim at the other artists and writers who said they won't stand with him. He said they're in their anandine comfort zones, not shaking up the world. Again, laughable if it wasn't so rage-inspiring. Because those artists are changing the world, and they don't have to rely on shock tactics to get their messages out. They're breaking new ground without feeling justified in breaking the people they stand for. There's this new thing. It's called Nuance. I know it's not quite the same as drawing mutilated genitals, but it seems to really be getting the message out there. And if Image and Shaken were serious about this message, they'd be serious about how it's being received, and they're not. I'm done wasting time on them. Come on, player two. Let's go to a castle that is probably mostly abandoned, might be infested with vampires. It's better than this mess. Let's go. You know what's better than trash fires? Abandoned castles. Mostly abandoned castles. We're just in the one castle. Can't be in many castles at once, that would be weird. Barely certain there's no one else here but us. (laughs) We're here because this is the perfect place to talk about Castlevania, which is currently a four-part animation on Netflix. Castlevania was a video game series first though, and it began all the way back in 1986, so there's quite a lot of history with this one. It's also got a little touch of Kojima. Actually, more than just a little touch, more than just one person called Kojima has worked on this, but the one I'm talking about is obviously the Metal Gear Solid and Death Stranding guy. He's always downplayed his influence in the Castlevania series, but he was apparently an advisor on the Castlevania Lords of Shadow game. There's always been a talk of a Castlevania movie, it's always been just about to happen, but I don't think it ever actually managed to, until now, with this animated series. The animated series is centred around two main characters from the Castlevania franchise, a member of the Belmont family, they're like a family of monster hunters, kind of like Hellsings or something, and various members of their family feature in the Castlevania games. Think kind of like Witcher, but instead of being infertile and poor, they have kids and are rich or used to be rich, which seems pretty realistic because everyone I know with kids used to have money and now they have none. They can't even buy comic books. And of course, the other character is Dracula. Can't have something about Castlevania and not have Dracula in it, or a version of Dracula. The animated series is set in more medieval times and without giving anything away, Dracula is raining hell down on earth and a Belmont is about to get caught up in all that. Also, the Catholic Church is doing the opposite of helping. It's bloody, it's gory, and the language will turn the air blue. It's perfect. It's also so much like Vampire Hunter D, if Vampire Hunter D wasn't an anime. I know, there's a lot of debate about what is anime and how it differs from cartoons and western animation, and I don't know where you're at with your anime knowledge player too, so I'm gonna give you a quick lesson. Here's how I explain it really simply, and of course there are exceptions to these rules. Anime is Japanese. There's a certain style and moreover a certain feeling with anime. Cartoons are western animations and both are great in my book, but not the same. Vampire Hunter D, the manga and later the anime movie, is kind of like Blade. It's about a vampire, called D, who hunts vampires. Also, his hand has a talking demon in it or is made of a talking demon. I'm not quite sure how much of his hand is the demon Not sure how much demon-to-hand ratio there actually is. If you like the imagery, voice acting, and storyline of the Castlevania animation, you're gonna love Vampire Hunter D. I could easily see both of these existing in the same universe. Vampire Hunter D is now considered, for a lot of people, to be old-school anime. It was released back in 2000. When most people think of old-school, though, you're probably picturing things like Samurai Pizza Cats and Dragon Ball Z. Or Zed, as I like to say. Vampire Hunter D is more like Battleship Yamato, or Cowboy Bebop, or Ghost in the Shell. Instead of overly big eyes and cute little noses, this was the anime with finer lines, more subdued palettes, and a general otherworldly feel to them. I think Akira actually blended those two styles incredibly well together, but that's another story for another time. There is a presence that this type of anime has, a mood that I can't explain but it's there. Vampire Hunter D is my favorite example of this, so it was really interesting to see that being mirrored in Castlevania. And that's not talking badly about Castlevania animation, I love it. And it's not even the first time that parallels have been drawn between the two. Apparently, a lot of the elements of Castlevania the game are a type of tribute to Hideyuki Kikuchi, who wrote the Vampire Hunter D novels. The gore levels are probably a touch higher in Castlevania than they are in Vampire Hunter D, but only because it's more obvious as to what's happening. If you don't watch a lot of anime, gore in anime is treated differently. There's a lot of blood in gore anime, and by no means is it less violent or shocking, but in general I find gore in anime to be a bit more suggestive or classy, while also being at least ten times more vicious though I get a lot of anime that's been made for Western audiences as well, so it's an altered version. Instead of seeing someone's face smashed in, you just see a shadow falling over the smashed-in face, and then the reaction of the person seeing the smashed-in face. I prefer it this way because I think there needs to be a degree of decorum when it comes to gore for it to truly be enjoyable. There's also a bit of swearing in Castlevania, which becomes repetitive after a while. Look, I love a good swear as much as anyone else. Yeah, we get it. You you really like the F word, this is really not for kids is what I'm saying. Like 100% not for kids. There's a four minute discussion about bestiality. So really not for kids. I can't stress that enough. Still, as an American take on a Japanese franchise, this has been put together surprisingly well. And it's only four episodes long, so it's not a huge time suck for you. If you enjoy it, let me know in meatspace on Twitter, at ChaosKidiem. And if enough of you enjoy it, maybe I'll do a list of vampire anime for you to watch. There's a heap out there and I really want to talk about it. Do you, did you hear that? This. Is, yeah, sometimes you're in a room and you like feel like someone's behind you. It's not someone behind you, is there? He's right behind you. Might need to run now. <sighs> <sighs> wow, wasn't that exciting? How we were running and got lost in this very scary wood. I think I know the way back to the tavern. So, uh, while we walk, how about we talk about Doctor Who? Because we can do that now, because it finished last week. So now we're allowed to talk about it. I think enough time has passed, yeah? You guys can talk about it. I haven't watched Doctor Who in a while. Not because Capaldi isn't brilliant, he is, but the Clara Mr. Pink arc totally lost it for me. Anyway, it's time for a new Doctor. Of course, the internet has thoughts about this that vary wildly and aggressively. Mainly the aggression comes when someone puts forward the suggestion that the doctor could maybe be a lady doctor. I'm not sure why, but the internet turns into every episode of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman when this happens. But a lady doctor? That's unheard of! And I'm here to help you with that. Not because I profess to know everything about Doctor Who, but I do know quite a bit about constructed worlds and universes, because I don't know whether you've noticed this, but I'm kind of a nerd and here's how it works from my perspective, which is obviously the best one, fight me. When it comes to character building, there are many ways to do it, but if we're gonna talk in binary terms, which I know a lot of people love to do, especially if they think the Doctor can only be a man, there are two types of characters in terms of development of character. You have your static character, and the shifting character. Static characters include, but are not limited to, Bruce Wayne, Superman, Lois Lane, Wonder Woman, Black Panther, Luke Cage, and Tony Stark. The characteristics of a static character is that they basically don't lend themselves to change because of what they represent. Their physical appearance may be altered slightly, their backstory tweaked, fleshed out, or even edited to create a better narrative for them, but they're always who they are their backstory, their origin stories. They're set in such a way that to change them is to change their experiences and who they are, what they represent in the worlds they inhabit. Bruce Wayne and Tony Stark are the best examples of this because to me, both of them have to be rich, white, men, and I would even err on the side of men who are mostly straight. Both of these characters come from a position of extreme privilege, and it's due to personal experiences that they bother to look outside their upper-class bubble. It's also due to this inherited wealth and status that they're afforded the means to play superheroes for realsies. And I think their particular flavor of rage and attitudes they both have in relation to society and justice systems are key to their characters and so can only be informed by their rich, white, straight, male, cis experience. Of course, you can have a black Batman and you can have an Asian Batman. He doesn't need to be white but consider for a moment the experiences that only a white Batman can really have. Bruce Wayne is a rich playboy, driving fast cars and throwing extravagant parties. You know what he rarely is? Stop by the police who are overly aggressive to him because they think he's stolen a car, or is a member of organized crime syndicates based purely on his appearance. Batman is a vigilante but he's a white vigilante, which is why they're calling him a vigilante in the press and having debates about his actions, not just calling him a radicalized criminal who definitely needs to be stopped. And before anyone starts, yes, I know, Bruce Wayne isn't the only one to be Batman, but that was a special circumstance and also Dick Grayson wasn't Batman for long, because to be Batman, you really have to be Bruce Wayne. There's no other way to get the job done as Batman. So that's a static character. Then we have the shifting characters. To follow on on the Batman theme, the Robins are shifting characters. Anyone can be a Robin, and depending on who is being Robin, depends on how Robin gets the job done. A perfect example being the difference between Dick Grayson and Damian Wayne. Dick is a smart, capable, and emotionally intelligent young man who's comfortable in his own self. Damian is a freaking psycho. And so they play the part of Robin markedly differently, and no one complains. You're allowed to have as many Robins as you like and explore all the stories out there through the different Robins. See Batman as our default belief. Robin is closer to what is actually true, a more varied experience. And here's what people who think that the Doctor can't be a lady or even shock horror not subscribe to a gender binary at all need to realise. The Doctor is a shifting character. And that's not only canon as part of the Whovian universe, but an integral part of the Doctor's character and narrative. To change, to say goodbye, and to be reborn as someone new is part of who the Doctor is. Being a man is part of who the Doctor has been, just like being someone with a preoccupation for jelly babies or thinking bow ties are cool. Those are a part of the Doctor that have existed, but no longer need to continue existing into the next life of the Doctor. If the Doctor continued as they had always been, then the Doctor we have now would be a human ball of bow ties long scarves offering everyone jelly babies while crying and attempting to play cricket. It also makes no sense that the Gallifreyans would subscribe to any kind of binary system ever, since even things like time being linear is laughable as a concept to them. The idea that gender being a static binary point, which they can never depart from, seems ludicrous. Also, within a number of constructed worlds, characters like the Doctor exist, and they emphasize the backward assumptions of binary gender as well. Look at Dax from Deep Space Nine, a Trill who lives in symbiosis with many life forms, and to whom the idea that you would only stay as one gender the whole way through is absurd. Because why would a being who can change their body and ostensibly live forever, or at least an incredibly long time, to whom there are so few barriers enforce such a trivial condition on themselves? The answer is they wouldn't, or at least not forever. But it's not just characters in sci-fi who can be shifting characters. James Bond, Black Widow, they can be reimagined characters too. And the way you can pick all of this is quite simple. See, they're not using their actual names. Take James Bond. That's a code name. We, we all know that, right? Like, dude's name is not actually James Bond. If it was actually James Bond, that would be the biggest risk to national security in the history of forever. Not counting most recent history, I think you know what I'm talking about. Also, there have literally been like six different James Bonds, and you can't pretend they're all the same guy. They're obviously not. One of them had a Scottish accent, which is why you can have a black James Bond. So let's sign up Idris Elba on that already. We're here waiting, impatiently. My point is this, I don't want or need characters to stay the same, nor do I need them to change, but to argue that a character whose story quite often references back to a change in appearance and personality cannot ever step out of the confines of the colour of their skin, gender, sexuality, or anything else is actually more disrespectful of that character and their abilities than saying, hey, what if they were a lady? I also stand by the theory that if a character exists within a universe where something as fantastic as space travel or pens with tiny cameras in them exist, then it's just flat-out stupid to argue that suddenly being a woman or not being white is the part you're having a hard time believing. And just before the bro-flake brigade get upset with me bringing identity politics into geekery, boo-boo, it's always been here. There's a reason people take sides when asked who would win in a fight between Batman and Superman, and it's not because we like to debate, but because it speaks to the deeper consciousness we have surrounding issues of justice, conflict resolution, and our view of power and how it truly manifests itself in times of conflict. The character you say you like says something about you. That's why we like them. Also, this is just fun to talk about, right? Side note, I think Clara will turn out to be the new Doctor because she's a woman out of time. She's got connections to all of the Doctors. And she's kind of rebellious, no-nonsense, crazy, leap-into-the-flames Moxie that I think lends itself when talking about the Doctor. And Michelle Gomez can be her companion. Fight me, but don't. I've looked into the future. You don't win. Come on, Player 2. Let's head back to the tavern. Hey, Player 2. Just come stand over here okay I know it's us turns out we came back here before we left so our past selves cannot see us or that would or that would explode the space-time continuum don't want that already been messing around with time and space a little bit too much which is sometimes why you'll see podlings in the podcast their little pockets of the pod (laughs) <laughs> they're just small, so if ever you don't have time to listen to the whole pod, those are a good option. Also, they're pockets of time in which everyone is trapped. That makes it more depressing when I put it that way, though. So, <laughs> Anyway, you better head back to Meatspace. While you're there, hit me up on the interwebs at M on Twitter, or Land of Pod on Facebook, or M on Facebook. I'm in all those places. Mainly Twitter, though, because I have a short attention span, and it really speaks to my needs. Oh, and while you're there, maybe... Hit like and subscribe and tell all your friends about this average podcast that's like, yeah, okay. Don't talk it up too much. I like to have people have really low expectations for me so I can meet those expectations. Barely. While you're out in meatspace, remember to get excited about the fact that Marvel is going to be creating a Chinese superhero. Very cool. Maybe next week we'll talk about that. You better head back to meatspace now. Until next time, player two.